Hello, and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies. Old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is our first bonus episode, and today we are going to be talking about The Lighthouse from 2019. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz, I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matty, how are you doing? Uh, Doing good, good to be here. Yeah, we're breaking the rules a little bit here. You know, each season focuses on a different streaming service, but every so often there might be movies that we really want to talk about for a particular reason, or in this case, there might be a guest who we really want to have on and they might have a movie that they really want to do. So I'm very pleased to welcome on to stream it for the first time, a buddy of ours, Garrett Gardner. Hey, Garrett, how are you doing? Hi, Zach. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we are we are glad to have you. I guess you don't fully go by your name all the time online, so sorry if I just doxed you to, uh, to <laughs> I mean, everyone listening I mean, to the my, podcast. My online moniker is G-Guards, which is like my name, so I don't <laughs> think I can really hide behind that, but you know. Hey, maybe people can't figure out that G-Guards <laughs> is Garrett Gardner, you know? <laughs> well, thanks for doxing me. I'm really glad if, to be here. If it works for Clark Kent, it can work for you, right? <laughs> Hey, to be fair, uh, very rarely do people figure out that my username, OrayMW, is just my name with my middle name. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. We're all doxing ourselves here. Yep. Uh, and, hey, my name isn't anywhere near my moniker, my uh, handle. So Garrett's a friend of mine from New York City. We met playing Magic the Gathering, but why don't you take a quick minute to introduce yourself and let people know where they can find you and what, what sort of stuff you do, Garrett? Hey, sure, yeah. So uh, online, I go by G-Guards. I stream on Twitch, Magic Cards, and I have a, another podcast called Mystical Dispute, which is a uh, short-form debate podcast about magic. And we had Zach on recently, so... Uh, I'm excited to swap podcasts with you, Zach. Yeah, kind of, <laughs> kind of worked out nicely. There, I'll, I'll have links to all that, all that stuff in the show notes. And I don't know how much overlap there is with our listeners and people who are interested in magic, but you only about half of the episode that I was on for Mystical Dispute was about magic. So I, yeah. I definitely <laughs> recommend that people check that out. And also, it's probably worth mentioning that you were the original co-host of Mystical Dispute before Matt stole you away from me. But uh, that's you right. Know, yeah, no hard feelings. I, what can I, say? I stopped playing Magic and started watching movies instead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the next the next section here is where we talk a little bit about our personal history with the movie, what we are bringing to this viewing, whether we've seen it before, how many times we've seen it. Uh, Matt and I can go first because I think we have pretty similar histories here. Why don't you start us off here, Manny? Yeah, you know what? I'm going to surprise you here. So I had never seen this movie before, but I do. So I teach a gothic literature unit every year that includes a lot of Edgar Allan Poe. And so I always get through some Edgar Allan Poe stuff. And there's this story that I always cover every single year, uh, which is the last story that Edgar Allan Poe wrote that he died in the middle of writing. And then I have my kids finish the story. It's called the lighthouse. And this story is, it's one of the sources for this movie that they uh, adapted a lot of the stuff from that story into this film. 
I didn't realize that until we were preparing for this episode. And not only that, but this is the week that I was doing that story. So I was like, oh, that's kind of cute. You know, I'm covering a movie called The Lighthouse and we're doing The Lighthouse, but it's just the same thing. Um, so that, that was really weird because I'm having all my kids like write their adaptations of the story and all their weird stuff. And then watching this film and I don't know, the, my kids at school get some really wild stuff in there, but you know, so that was a fun experience and I wasn't expecting it going into the film. Otherwise I hadn't seen it and, uh, it was on my list of things to watch, but never really got around to it. Yeah, and I, so I had not seen this movie. I knew that it was a movie that Garrett really liked. And I think (laughs) I knew it was like a psychological thriller. And I knew that you had said, Garrett, that it was like pretty surrealist. And I also knew that you said that I would probably hate it. So then I knew that (laughs) I had to love it just to, just to spite you. Did you, did you end up spiting me? Oh, I don't know. I can't. I can't tell you until the second half of the show. Spoiler. <laughs> okay. Well. <laughs> yeah. Spoilers. Uh, but I, what I did do because the Robert Eggers is that the director's name? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I keep wanting to say Dave Eggers, who is a writer and someone else. Um, he has a he has a new movie out now with The Northman, which is getting really positive reviews, and I kind of wanted to. S- see that one and he only has two movies before that um and so i watched the witch on monday and then i watched the lighthouse right after it so not the same day i watched it on tuesday so i was already in like a frame of mind for his directorial style and i think i had a pretty good sense of what type of movie to expect going in and what about you garen so <clears throat> my personal history with this movie is there's a movie theater really close to where I live called the Alamo Draft House. There's a whole bunch of them around the uh, United States, and there's one in Brooklyn. And uh, I, I, yeah, yeah love really it. You theater. get to order food, you get to order beer and stuff like that. And they have, you know, they, they it's a, it's a, they have most movies, but it also has like kind of arty movies sometimes and flashback stuff that they play and. Back in 2019, we were going like at least once, maybe twice a week, and there were there were advertisements for this. Uh, when you when you go to the movies that often, you see the same trailers over and over and over. And there was a trailer for this movie that I basically ended up memorizing, and I loved the trailer. Everything about it was just like right up my alley. So I was really excited to to see it, and then they didn't show it at the Alamo. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! Which, and there's a story behind that too, apparently, but we never learned what it was. Uh, the the person in charge of, of, of choosing which movies to play said that they had some kind of issue or something, and it sounded like maybe they didn't like it or something. So anyway, we ended up seeing it, uh, bam, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and uh, it was it was awesome. I guess that's that's I I know I'm not I'm not supposed to say I I mean we're talking about it because I love it right so yeah no no, no I think I think that's fine we, All right, it's good. a little more yeah and if it wasn't fine we'd cut it out of the final show. okay but yeah that that's totally good I was because I was going back through our chat logs looking to see when you had told me that I would probably hate it. I also found the moment where you said you were going into the theater to see it. So I know that you 
saw this movie on November 10th, 2019, which also happens to be the same day. Like, while you were watching the movie, I completely ignored all of your comments because the Sounders won their second MLS Cup. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like you. Sounds like you. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't remember that you had ever said this. And you also said that you loved the movie afterwards, and I just completely ignored the whole thing. (laughs) It's all tracks. (laughs) Like a... Like an absolute dingus. <laughs> I, you know, this is one that I had wanted to see when it was coming out, but the release schedule was, or the release, like it didn't release in a lot of theaters. And I don't think it was even, mm-hmm. like, there may have been just one theater that was showing it in all of Las Vegas. Cause, you know, I'm not lucky like you guys that live over by New York and you can, like, go see things. Um, <laughs> here, we don't, we don't get that. And sometimes the movies just don't ever make it in this direction. And I'm pretty sure that this is one that they, you know, they just kept it limited the entire time. So, sad. And I, Garrett, I know, because we've talked about it, that you have seen The Witch, but had you seen it before you saw The Lighthouse, or did you see it afterwards? Yeah, I saw The Witch just like a year or two after it came out, I think. So it's been a long time, but I do remember very much enjoying it and the style of it. So that was part of why I was excited to see it. Yeah. See The Lighthouse. Cool. Let's talk a little bit about 2019. We, uh, two decades ago, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's two decades ago as we're recording this, we're in the year 2022. So yeah, there was, there was a little blip that caused there to be an inserted two decades right there. (laughs) Matt and I have covered, so we've covered every year from the Trump presidency. We've covered movies from every year of the Trump presidency now, except for 2020. But this is our first movie from 2019. And yeah, it. we've said it before when we're covering the Trump any year that he was president, but you just scroll through that wiki page of 2019 and it's like, oh, that yeah, this year was horrible. Everything on this list is absolutely horrible. So... Yeah. Matt, I know you had had at least one specific thing that you wanted to talk about. So what do you you have? Yeah, so uh, I put on here on January 1st of 2019, the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, uh, Mm -hmm. more uh, more often known as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act. It was the first year Mm -hmm. that things that were under that act entered the public domain. So they had extended everything from like 1998 until 2019. So things from 1923 entered the public domain, which is kind of like a broad category and it pr- most people probably didn't notice. But it was a really big deal for me as an educator uh, because it meant there was a lot more stuff that I was able to use in my classroom because uh, it was public domain. Uh, but the reason why I wanted to bring it up in relation to this story is because as an adaptation of an Edgar Allan Poe story, uh, it would have been public domain beforehand, but... The ability of people to take public domain stories and do something really unique with it, I think is an important part of the public domain. And we can get more stories like this as more things enter the public domain and people are able to take things and play with them and adapt them. And it really frustrates me that this act exists and extends the the you know copyright protection so far as to be just without outside of the lifetimes of so many people that even are come generations after something is created yeah and we should say the reason this is colloquial colloquially known as the 
Mickey Mouse Act or Mickey Mouse Copyright Act is because Disney's like greatest fear is the idea of the mouse going into public domain. Like as soon as that happens, they they are very scared of that moment. So they have been they have had copyright lawyers working on that for I think like decades now and just trying to make sure that doesn't happen or trying to delay that happening for as long as possible. Yeah, it's a ticking time bomb right now, two years until Mickey Mouse goes into the public domain. So... (laughs) We'll see. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe we'll get at some point some surrealist, weird uh, Mickey Mouse movie on, like, I don't know, an island or a lighthouse or something, and it'll be phenomenal. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Mickey and maybe. Goofy in the lighthouse. That's right. Yeah, it'd be amazing. <laughs> we'll just go and edit uh, edit Mickey into all the movies. Let's do it, yeah. Some of the stuff that I pulled from 2019, there was something on December 1st that I don't... It, maybe people will have forgotten this by now. It didn't really yeah. have a ton of repercussions. But that was the first known human case of COVID, the novel coronavirus that... Mm, had a little bit of impact on the world and movies, but really not a ton. <laughs> and then December 20th. I, I tried to what? avoid the most depressing stuff on here. And then, you know, we just, there we go. COVID happened. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's important to Hard know. Hard to avoid that one. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it is, but but it makes a big difference for knowing that, like, this is one of the last you only really had like five months after this movie was released of people being able to go to the movie theater, you know? Yeah. Before yeah, like everything I said, shut well, down. My story, you know, I went to the Alamo once or twice a week and I haven't been there since. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you probably saw a lot of movies after this before because you were going so often. But yeah. Yep. Certainly a lot of people could have been their last one. I guess that would be weird. It's a pretty niche movie for then you not to see any movies for another five months. But anyway, you, have you Garrett? Um, have you like watched a lot of movies as they've come out on streaming and things like that? How much have you kept off, or has has your movie <clears throat> watching just dropped off a cliff? Not completely off a cliff. Uh, I've watched a lot of things as soon as they become available on streaming, and I did see Dune in theaters. That was the one exception. I did get to see that mm-hmm. in Alamo, which was great, but. Uh, outside of that, I have missed way more movies than I, I'm used to. You, you know, uh, I guess I could <laughs> go a little bit into... I, I used to be a movie projectionist. I don't know if either of you knew oh, that cool. uh, at, at a movie theater. So uh, I've been really into movies for a long time. I mean, that was just a you know minimum wage job that I had. <laughs> but it was it, it overlapped with my interests a lot. And uh, it was uh, I got to see all the movies while I was there for free that came through. So... Yeah, it makes sense if you have to have a minimum wage job and you have some selection of it, you're going to kind of bias yourself towards something that you have interests for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds better than, you know, the minimum wage job I had where I was attending a gas station through a graveyard shift. So I'd rather have, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) jealous of the movie. I imagine it. Yeah, I I, petrol enthusiast. No. I feel really lucky to have had that job. Actually, it was really cool. The the um, projection booth had um, it, it was like old 1950s stuff. You had to actually thread the movies through, and I learned how to do it with actual film. Yeah, that's cool. That's really neat. 
Yeah, we'll talk about A24 a little later, but Matt and I were both listing the A24 films that we had seen. And then, Garrett, I think you, like, lapped us on how many you had seen. And I was like, well, maybe you should have the movie podcast, not the, not the magic podcast. I mean, A24 puts out some real good movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ab- I think there was bangers. two on that list that I didn't like, and I at least liked every other one I'd seen, so... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I had just a few other things that I pulled from from this time period. The so December 20th, the Brexit was something that hung over all of England and hung over all of global politics for this entire year. Like there was a bunch of infighting and a bunch of various votes and <laughs> people called snap elections and then lost those snap elections and but on December 20th, Parliament finally voted to leave the EU, which they would then finally do by January 31st of 2020. And I thought that was, this is a movie that kind of is about what happens when you're isolated. And so I thought that was uh, an interesting thing to note. For sure. And then the other thing... There was there's a particular term that came into popular use during the Donald Trump presidency, and it's certainly a word that came to mind while watching this movie, and I wanted to look up the etymology of this. I'm not sure if this is something that you guys were familiar with. Um, the term is gaslighting, the idea of making someone feel crazy because so that you can make them do what you want or make them think what they want. You know, you're presenting reality as not real and making them feel like the crazy one when you're the abusive one or um, whoever is doing the gaslighting. And the so the term was a lot older than I expected it to be. It came from the 1944 film Gaslight, which is about a husband doing exactly this to his wife, making her think that she's the crazy one so that he can steal from her. But it didn't become part of the normal lexicon until the 2010s. It looks like the first time it was used in the New York Times was 1995, but then it only was used in the New York Times maybe a handful of times over the next two decades until... Uh, 2016, when the American Dialect Society recognized the word gaslight as the most useful new word of the year. (laughs) And then in 2018, the Oxford University Press was a little behind the times, and they called it their runner-up in the list of the most popular new words of 2018. Yeah, so I, I feel like I kind of remember this happening when there were, like, probably Vox articles on, like, what is gaslighting or gaslighting explained? But I, I could not have told you how old it was until until I looked it up. For sure. Yeah, I feel like I'd looked this up in the past sometime, but it's now flooding back to me now. It's 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 funny because uh, we use it so often these days. I would definitely have not guessed that it's only a few years old uh, in popular usage. I'm, yeah, it's, it's one of those so descriptive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so much so behavior we've seen. <laughs> Well, the the movie is a really interesting one too, and so like it, it elaborates on the concept so well. Um, but 
it also feels very similar in a lot of ways to this one that we just watched. So there's a great connection there. Go go watch the you Gaslight mean... at some point, folks. Oh, you, you've seen it? Uh, yes. Woot. Oh, and then I pulled just a few major news items that also happened in 2019 that seem at least somewhat tangentially related to gaslighting. So basically all of them bad. The Christchurch shooting in New Zealand, the Mueller report was released, and then Donald Trump was subsequently impeached, and the college admissions cheating scandal, which was a full scandal that I had completely forgotten about. Same. (laughs) (laughs) When I saw it on rushing back to me here. Yeah, I know. I thought, oh, geez, that year. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, geez. (laughs) Uh, it's it's hard to care too much was, about what's what's her name and uh, whatever from Full House at, at this point, but you know that was that year. Yeah. Did did you guys have anything else from 2019 you wanted to talk about, or should I just run down the top movies quickly and we'll get out of here? I'm good. I mean, yeah, I I I can't think of anything besides the fact that it was just before COVID in a different yeah. world. <laughs> All right. So the the top movies for 2019, the I mean Disney is just in full domination mode at this point. Number 1, we have Avengers Endgame, and then number 2, the live action remake of The Lion King, number 3, Frozen 2, number 4, Spider-Man Far From Home, which the wiki lists as Sony Pictures, but obviously that's a joint venture. Captain Marvel, Disney, so the that's the top five are Disney or at least Disney co-pros. I think the Spider-Mans are officially co-pros. Yeah, they, right? I think so. Sony has the distribution rights, whereas uh, Disney raked in all the theater stuff, right? Yeah, I think so. It's a pretty weird deal, yeah. Yeah, and then so our first non-Disney film is, at number six is Joker. And then we're back to Disney, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, Toy Story 4 at number 8, live action Aladdin at number 9, and then sneaking in at number 10 is Jumanji The Next Level. A lot of Marvel movies, a lot of samey movies. I know that's one of the criticisms that Garrett has about like a lot of the superhero movies and things like that, is they're so similar, and correct me if I'm wrong, Garrett, but one of the reasons why you like things like The Lighthouse and uh, these kinds of indie films is because they are unique and like they push boundaries in ways that these other big projects simply can't do. Yeah, that's that, that's that's a good uh, representation of my, my opinion. Although, I mean, a, a movie like The Lighthouse will never make the top 10 highest grossing films of any year. Um, this list is, is maybe different from that uh, concept, but at the same time, you look at a list like this and you see, what, eight out of ten are Disney and uh, various various established IPs like the MCU or Star Wars, and it, it you compare it to something like the 90s, which is what I like to do, where all ten movies were just completely different genres and all unique stories, and I kind of, you know, I have a little bit of nostalgia for that sort of uh, top ten highest grossing film. For sure. And like the I was looking at these numbers and the lowest one on this top ten made a eight hundred million dollars worldwide and we're gonna get into how much the lighthouse <laughs> made, but it was ten million dollars. So like just understanding the, the difference between that is such a big difference and so mm-hmm. many people so many more people watched Jumanji, a remake of a remake 
of a remake, I guess, sort of. Um, and a, a sequel to a re to yeah, a sequel to a reboot, right? <laughs> sequel to a reboot yeah. that had been remade like three years earlier. I don't know. That was based on. It's just wild, but just as an example of all this stuff. And I, I should. I should say, by the way, that Jumanji The Next Level was a perfectly fun and serviceable movie that I enjoyed quite a bit. Yeah, me but, too. You know. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's not this kind of movie, right? It's not the same kind of... No. It's, uh, it's not the same kind of art experience and the same kind of emotional experience that you're going to have. And they're, they're doing two different things and they're doing them just fine at what they're doing. But it, it, Jumanji just can't be, or any of these things just can't be what this film was. Totally agree. No, and... I think we can use that to segue into our personnel and stats here, because I think one of the things that is so frustrating is like those those big budget films, you know, they almost never get recognized come award season and at, you know, at the Oscars particularly. And there's a lot of strife and hand wringing, especially from fans of those movies. And certainly myself included sometimes just feel like they aren't they don't necessarily get appreciated for the good things that they do but then you'd also expect that a film like this would be able to get some recognition at the oscars but it only got one nomination which i was actually still somewhat pleasantly surprised to see that it was able to sneak in there it got a nomination for cinematography and it it's weird because it is we've talked about it before but it is one of the years where there was a threshold for voting for the best picture nominations. And so there were only nine nominations and it just, it's such a bummer to me when stuff like that happens. Cause it's like, there are definitely movies that are worth being recognized for that 10th category. But, and so you're just always wondering what, like what could have been or what, what additional movie could have gotten recognized. Yeah. Well, and it, I don't know the Oscars, don't often actually go for movies like this that are really taking a risk. It's like war movies and uh, mafia movies and like history films. Yeah. And biopics. And that's, that's all that really ever gets nominated in the Oscars. Like you can't convince me that this movie didn't deserve to be nominated alongside like, I don't know, like the Irishman or something like that. Yeah. The Irishman was kind of the one that, stuck out to me when I was looking at the at the nominee list but I I didn't mean to suggest that like I expected it to get nominated for best picture it's more like it it's just a bummer that it isn't able to get recognized in the award season or at the bo- or you know be be gangbusters at the box office like that's what the Oscars are supposed to do for movies that can't compete at the box office so you know i could probably babble at you enough for a full episode about my feelings on the oscars the academy awards but i feel like when people say oscar bait that's sort of what they mean right there's this particular genre and type of film that will get nominated at the oscars and it's not the superhero like highest grossing films but it's also not the really risky films but you know i think what was it one year later or was it that year that parasite won same year um, 
Yeah, same year. This is yeah, this is the parasite year. So this is the parasite year. So you know, I say that, but you know, I think parasite probably does qualify in that in 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 a risk taking category. So it's a nice that was a nice moment in the Oscars history, I would say. For sure, it was a little bit of a dark horse going in though, because you had like I don't know, Marriage Story in 1917 and Little Women and The Irishman and all these things that were getting so much more press. And I don't know, it was a surprise for the parasite to do that well. And this does feel along in the same kind of realm of movie as something like Parasite. Yeah. So you pulled the you pulled the numbers on the stats for this, Matty. So what do, what do we got? Yeah. So this movie was made for eleven million dollars, uh, and then ended up pulling mm. in eighteen million dollars, which is perfectly respectable amount for a film to make. Usually, you're expecting like the big movie studios are usually gunning for a bigger return on investment than this would be, but a24 that released this film they're they're they really squeeze a lot out of every movie that they release and they they aren't looking at films as like uh just putting one out and kind of abandoning it and and letting it bomb in the box office so this is a respectable amount for them and it's the kind of film that keeps their studio afloat so perfectly decent uh perfectly decent numbers what I found really interesting, though, is that year it had this the second highest per screen average out of any movie that came out that year. So in each theater where it was released, really big numbers. It just didn't have a wide enough release to make a huge amount beyond that. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's. <laughs> Well, maybe the Alamo should have showed it then. It sounds like, it may, and maybe that's why, because a lot of a lot of theaters probably didn't declined to show this. Even even more art art house type uh, theaters seem to take a pass on this one. Yeah, it's. A, I, I know that I was listening to an interview with A twenty four, and they were talking about how, th- like, the work that they go through to get movies into theaters is a lot more than maybe uh, other kinds of studios. But they work really hard to get them in there. It's just that a lot of theaters don't want to take a chance on it. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about A twenty four because they have a lot of movies out this year, and they were, you know, I was sitting in the theater before seeing everything everywhere all at once and just like looking at which is an A24 film and I was looking at the list of their films and I was just like it's kind of like every movie that is on here is a movie that I want to see or a movie that has been on my like to watch list for a long time and so just just this year just in 2022 they have The Sky is Everywhere, which is on Apple TV+. And then they have After Yang, which is a movie that has been very highly regarded, as well as X, which um, is a little slasher slasher porno film. I mean, it's not like a porno, but it's a slasher about people making a porno. And then Everything Everywhere all at once. And last year, they're big movies they had uh the green knight and tragedy of macbeth and red rocket and minari and why don't you guys run down some of the movies that they had but i actually garrett i'll toss it over to you because you've seen a lot of them sure is there let me pull up a list well you you were mentioning how many films that you want to see from this studio and it almost feels like this studio is targeting our demographic it must be what's happening because it's definitely what's happening with me it's 
There's just so mm-hmm. many of their films are like films that I really wanted to see and then ended up enjoying. You, know, you already went through the 2020s, um, but before that they had Zola, which was based on that uh, Twitter thread that went viral. That was a fun movie that was also kind of terrifying. Um, there's a couple I missed. First Cow looked very interesting, but The Farewell, very highly re- regarded. One of my favorite Midsum- films, The Farewell. I just love that movie so much. And uh, uh, I guess I'm talking about this a little bit in reverse, but A24 also does horror pretty well and uniquely. And they had Midsommar. Uh, Midsommar? Is that how? Midsommar. <laughs> <laughs> Which, fantastic, creepy, and very entertaining film. Highly recommended if you're a uh, psychological horror fan. Which, maybe if you are, if you watch if you want to see the lighthouse and <laughs> never heard of it before that though i think that one of i think probably my favorite horror movie of all time was a24 it's called hereditary mm-hmm. terrifying movie <laughs> truly uh uh deeply disturbing and i also just want to shout out to uh eighth grade uh that's the the Bo burnham created uh film with uh, an actual i think 12, like 12 or 13 year old girl who just knocks it out of the park with an uh, it's the, the, the you can see sort of a theme here they have like you know more I guess artsy uh, horror films um, but also like coming to age films and things like that that just seem to appeal I guess to, to us <laughs> for sure some of my favorite films that they've made they also made Moonlight which is just a phenomenal yes film. the one best picture uh, that was the first film that they produced they do mostly distribution but some other ones that i loved ex machina the oscar isaac film and just adore that film and then room that has brie larson i don't know if you ever saw that one garrett but uh, oh yeah i have yeah that one's terrifying yeah Um, yes (laughs) and deeply disturbing the i looked at their list i've seen eight movies off of their list and five of their movies that i've seen are in my top 100 movies which is an incredible hit rate. And it seems it just seems like every time I see a movie trailer in the past few years, I'm like, oh, that really looks really good. Who made this? And it's, uh, it's just A24 right there at the end. And they're a really, really good distribution uh, studio. We're, we're, we're going to get into the details of the, the Lighthouse in the second half, right? But if you do end up enjoying The Lighthouse, I think of all of A24's filmography, I would recommend... Number one, as Swiss Army Man. If you like this combination of uh, weird and, I don't know, creepy, <laughs> but also extremely weird, I recommend Swiss Army Man with Dan- Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah, and that's the um, the same people who did Everything Everywhere all at once. Oh, I didn't know that. that. Was their, yeah, that was their, their first film. The Daniels, yeah. The Daniels, yeah. yeah. It's all Dan- it's a Daniel trifecta for sure with Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> One of the things that I uh, so I was looking up A24 and trying to figure out why it is that so many of their movies are good and like what it is that they're doing and they're a really weird uh, distributor to figure out yeah. what's going on with them. They're based in New York and from what I could tell their strategy is just they buy films that 
are unique and have a unique perspective that other studios won't take a risk on. But what makes them really unique is their their marketing strategy. They use a lot of guerrilla marketing and they they approach marketing from a different perspective of most movie studios, which is like a uh, throw your net really wide and hope that you can catch your audience somewhere in that. What A24 does is they'll target a specific audience and then try to build their audience around a film in the release as it's going on. So like with everything all at once, everything everywhere all at once, they targeted specifically Asian American people and like sent out screeners to people and released it in theaters that were in heavily Asian American neighborhoods at the very first in order to build up the conversation around that group and then as the devotion to the movie and the love for that movie started to build within the group that they knew would like it, then it starts to spread wider to a, a bigger audience. They did a similar thing with Moonlight, similar thing with The, the Farewell. And so all of their movies do really, like, the, these really decent numbers at the at the box office because they, they market them so well and figure out who's going to watch them and then put it into their hands really well. That actually kind of makes sense. I feel like I feel like I'm thinking about how I heard about some of those movies, you know, everything, everywhere, all at once in Moonlight. And I feel like my memory of it is I just started hearing like trickles about them at first. And then all of a sudden I started to hear a bit more. And then there's like more stuff on Twitter about people seeing them and saying they love them. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's a week before release and it's just a tsunami. It's like, I can't look anywhere without seeing about everything, everywhere, all at once. And then it's just like, bam, it's all, it's all there. For sure. Did, Garrett, I know you had said that you became obsessed with the trailer for this movie. Did you feel like the trailer prepared you well for the movie? Like, did it make, was the movie what you expected based on the oh, trailer? Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely, for sure. I think it was a really good representation of the feeling of the film and the, the, the themes and everything. Um, I know you hate trailers, Zach, because they they ruin some. I mean, they've. I mean, and I don't disagree with you. A lot of them have uh, heavy spoilers and can ruin moments in the film. But I, I, my memory of the lighthouse. I mean, if you don't know anything about it, I guess uh, it'll tell you something. But I don't think it it it, it, it can give away too many big plot points or anything like that. I, I it, it's a great trailer. <laughs> No, one of the things that we've really become more cognizant of as we've been doing the podcast and hopefully been getting better at the podcast is like every movie kind of has a different amount of what sort of the optimal amount of knowledge going in is and what the like what you really need to know and what's going to give you that best first viewing experience. And so, yeah, I have said a lot that I hate trailers, but really it's for movies that I know I'm going to see. I just don't right. need to see the trailer. I think a movie like this, it it probably would help a lot to see to see the trailer, which we'll, we have a section for that coming up. So we'll we'll get into that. Well, to be honest with this film, like I don't know, I don't know that I understood it after watching it. So um, I don't know that the trailer would. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that the trailer could spoil anything. Right. Yeah. Sure. I mean, there's films that the entire point is the reveal in the end, and then there's points where. There's films where uh, just, you know, which characters from the universe will show up and things like that. And they, that can really sully your experience if you are already going to see those films. But for something like this, you know, where even after you see it, you're not totally sure what happened. I think uh, I would recommend checking out the trailer. Yeah. yeah. 
maybe I'll even put a link in the show notes. Uh, who who else do we have here that we want to talk about, Manny? So I jotted down Robert Eggers and Jaron Blaschke, this director-cinematographer duo. Everybody knows that I love to bring up my cinematographers. And these two really <laughs> are, like, very close as a pair on the films. They've All the big films they've done together, uh, they've done, they've done together. Uh, they did a lot of short films together beforehand. They both talked about how they went through this process of trying to find the right person to do movies with and then eventually they found each other and like you know fell in love with each other and uh, making movies and you know they're not romantically in entwined in any, any way but the process of finding each other sure sounds a lot like the process of finding a life partner uh, romantically <laughs> so and they're just they have such a unique approach to filmmaking they're Really big film nerds. They really like period pieces. And Jaron Blaschke talks about how, you know, he wanted to use all, like, period-appropriate cameras for this film. So it was shot on a Panavision Millennium XL2. But the lenses they used, they got, nineteen like, original 1930 Baltar lenses and put them on the camera. So the lenses are original. <laughs> um, for parts of the film, they sw- swapped out those lenses for film lenses that were made in 1902. It was f- shot on, like, original 1930s Kodak X film. And... Just all this very old equipment that they were using as they're making it. They're really big cinematography and photography nerds. And so as they were putting this together, you you can see that kind of craft coming into the film. Yeah, and Robert Eggers was... I, I was not surprised to find this when I looked it up afterwards because it seems pretty obvious from the movie, but he comes from a theater background. So a lot of... Pinter and Beckett influences going into his work and particularly into this movie. Yes, though his theater influences are as a costumer, which was his job in theater. Yeah, I think it just feels like, like it feels to me like a movie that someone I went to college would would make. (laughs) You know, it feels like it has a very similar sensibility, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. The, so... This movie, we said this is his second movie. His first movie was The Witch. And The Witch was a movie that sort of had a lot of trouble getting off the ground. He had made the movie and then couldn't really, or I think was in production for the movie, but couldn't find all of the funding for it. And so he was pretty disillusioned with it. But then by the time the movie was finished and it got released, it got really good reviews and was really successful and so that sort of created this second wind that he was then able to you know get get this project going and i think both both willem dafoe and robert pattinson they saw the witch and they went to were were like oh i want to work with this director and so they kind of had similar stories of wanting of going to him separately and being like hey do you have a movie we can do (laughs) (laughs) well they're perfect in their roles so they're phenomenal yeah 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 yeah, they they really are i don't i'm not like super familiar with either of them i don't know if either of you want to talk about sort of your experience with them or their their filmography but leading up to this movie well willem dafoe is the i mean he's got a very long career but i let's start on robert pattinson though because i i kind of love this sort of uh actor's journey 
that sometimes yeah. happens. Uh, because, you know, Robert Pattinson's first major role, I believe, was in the Twilight Saga as the sparkling vampire Edward. And he was this <laughs> sort of, you know, like, and that can, when, when, when that's when your break, breakout role is, it's really hard to escape that. And he also played Cedric Diggory in the, uh, in the Harry Potter films. And, but then ever since then, you know, he's gone and done very, you know, unusual projects like this one and kind of proven his acting chops. And I think that like that journey is probably what led him into being considered for the role of the Batman in the most recent iteration of that in the Batman, because that film feels a little less like a, if that felt, that film kind of felt to me like it was intending to be a little bit more thoughtful and artistic, I guess, than the, the average uh, superhero movie. And I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, that, I don't know the 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 career trajectory of Rob, Robert Pattinson is a uh, is a lot of fun for me to to you know feels like very well deserved. He's a very excellent actor and and nailed his role in the Lighthouse. So the the acting choices he makes in this film are just really interesting, and there's so many moments where like the voices that he's doing or the actions that he's doing are it's perfect for the moment but they're very unique and they have layers in the choices that he's making. And I think, I think it's a brilliant performance from Robert Pattinson. And I hope that he does a lot more stuff in this vein because he's just great. I haven't actually seen it, but there's another a 24 film called good time where he plays a, I believe a drug addict and it's, it's by the Safdie brothers who you may know did the recent Uncut Gems, which also came out in 2019, also in mm-hmm. A24, also a great film. And I, uh, that's, on my, that's high on my list of things to see, but I hear that it's pretty harrowing, so I haven't gotten <laughs> around to seeing it. But, um, I mean, he's obviously a very well-rounded actor. Yeah, and I think the they were when they were sort of talking, him and Robert Eggers, <laughs> the Roberts, were sort of... <laughs> mulling over projects there was another project that had been discussed i think one where he was like maybe a victorian statesman or something like that and robert pattinson was like yeah that doesn't actually sound like enough of an acting challenge like i think your read on it garrett that he wanted people to view him as a serious actor and not just as a sparkly vampire like he wanted to do that and he felt like he had the chops and it's i mean this was you can kind of compare it to Daniel Radcliffe, who was, you know, I mean, even more than Twilight series, Daniel Radcliffe is always going to be known as Harry Potter, but he's just taken yeah. such odd and and fun and bizarre roles since then. Even just in the TV show I saw recently, Miracle Workers, where it, th- these are just like roles that don't feel like, they feel like, you know, in- intended to break away from that that one role that defines you. And, and I think both of them succeeded really well. Yeah, I was also thinking of the career trajectory of um, Leonardo DiCaprio, yep. who started. I mean, I, it was the heartthrob. Like, <laughs> yeah, a heartthrob. It's, it's exactly, kind of like the McConaughey, right? Matthew McConaughey was in a bunch of. Um, he was in a bunch mm-hmm. of uh, rom coms, and he was known for that. And then suddenly, he was like, "Well, no, I'm actually a very talented, serious actor," and proved it. <laughs> yeah. Back to Danny Radcliffe for a moment. This same year, he also did Guns Akimbo, which is one of the weirdest movies I have ever seen in my life. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that one, Garrett, but... Oh, I have, yes. That movie is Very so enjoyable. weird. Um, I don't know that it was good at all, but whew, it was a fun It was a fun one to watch. Oh, I, 
Notice, notice I said uh, enjoyable and not good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so weird. Um, he does a great Very job in that one, it. but I don't know. Like it's, uh, I wouldn't. Rec- I don't know. It's it's one you gotta. <laughs> I don't know if I'd recommend it. Yeah, yeah but it was a. There's fun actually one. A, there's a, yeah, and um, he also did Horns, which is a is a film from a couple years prior to that, and he's in uh, Swiss Army Man. As even if you don't know about that movie, well, I guess yeah, if you don't know about that movie, he's a he's a corpse. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, used by uh, Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe. It's kind of a. It's it's very. It's uh, as I said. It's you know all about these two actors being together in every scene, and uh, and making a very bizarre story. So, <laughs> another plug for Swiss Army Man. Yeah. Welcome to uh, Stream It, the podcast where we just plug other movies. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the cool thing about movies. If you like one movie, you'll probably like other movies. <laughs> well, I guess that is true, yeah. <laughs> do either of you, we should probably keep this this bad boy moving, but do either of you want to say anything about our our Green Goblin here? I guess spoilers for Spider-Man. Oh, for, for Willem Dafoe. I don't know. Like, yeah. So, I just love Willem Dafoe. He's great in everything I that know. he's in. Who doesn't? Yeah. Speed 2. Iconic villain. He's so good. <laughs> Everything. Iconic villain. I mean, he's, he's I mean, he has such a long career too. I mean, I mean Boondock Saints is is one of his uh, more memorable roles. He was also in American Psycho. He shows up in John Wick. Uh mm-hmm. he's just like everywhere this guy and every time he leaves a lasting impression on the on the film, I feel like people always remember who he is. I mean, if the what was it the uh in um the life aquatic with steve zissou he is a he sings french covers of david bowie songs while on the boat uh, the entire time <laughs> my one of i don't know i haven't one seen of the willem defoe one to. of the willem defoe movies that sticks out the most to me is platoon which is older mm-hmm. much earlier in his career in 1986 but that movie is harrowing and he is phenomenal in that one as well uh when i was a teenager my my girlfriend at the time had a much younger brother and Willem Dafoe actually lived near our hometown and and he was I don't know her brother was like five or six years old and he was very familiar with the Spider-Man movie he saw Willem Dafoe in public and ran screaming because he said the Green Goblin is here (laughs) 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 so that's that's my that's my personal uh Willem Dafoe story for you that's great (laughs) terrifying all right. So our our next section, we've sort of already covered it, but this is the section where we just talk about why we chose this movie. You know, there's a limited number of movies that you can do a podcast on when you're doing it once a week. So we've talked about that, Garrett, you're a really big fan of this movie, and I had to see it and like it just to spite you. But then the <laughs> other thing is, because this is a bonus episode, I think this is going to get released. The goal is for this to get released a little speedier than normal. So I'm hoping this is out while The Northmen is still in theaters. And then if people go and see The Northmen, then maybe they'll they'll want to check out some more of his work. Or maybe they'll want to see this before The Northmen. And I also wanted to quickly mention, so the, the budget for this was $11 million, but then the, based on the success of The Witch and this, like the Northman just explodes. The Northman has a budget of somewhere between 70 and 90 million. And it, I 
believe it's some amount of it is shot on IMAX, right? I believe so. They brought back Willem Dafoe and Anna. Yeah. What's her name from Anna? Anna Taylor Joy. Anna Taylor Joy. And apparently they actually wanted to bring back Robert Pattinson for it, but he was busy on the Batman. So, but they, they really wanted him back and they're like trying to work with Robert Pattinson again because they both, they all enjoyed him so much. And neither of you have seen The Northman yet, no. right? I haven't seen it yet, you know. I think I might go this weekend. <laughs> I might go on I'm Sunday. Jealous. <laughs> Do either of you want to want to justify our choice here or shall we move on to our last section here for the first half? I just love the lighthouse, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I get that. Spoilers for spoilers for part two. All right. So this last section, and this is where we really try and like, you know, curate so that our viewers might people if they're listening to it and they do want to check out the movie, give them sort of the most optimal first time viewing of this film. And I know that, Matt, you had something that you wanted to mention here. Yeah, so this movie is really dark. And I don't mean from like an emotional standpoint, but just like the light. It's really dark in a lot of places and really bright in a lot of places. Uh, when I first was watching this, I sat down to watch it, and I was watching it on on my television, but I couldn't, like, there were lights in the background and, like, in the corner and things like that, and I couldn't see half the screen when this was on. Uh, and I couldn't turn the lights off because my spouse was working on something. So I had to go and get my phone, and then I tried to, like, angle it, but I was getting reflections off the screen. So in the end, I had to turn off all the lights and then put my covers over my head in order to watch this film to get a good lighting experience. Um, I can only imagine that it was great in the movie theater where the light is, like, under control. But for myself, like, I had to go through a little bit of effort to, to actually see this with good lighting. It really enhanced my experience of it, though, so I recommend... Um, just being able to control the light around you while you watch it. Yeah, I, I had the the exact same thing. I, you know, I don't always like black out my apartment, but for this movie, I I definitely had to. Do you have anything that you wanted to add here, Garrett? Um, you don't have to. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, I can't think of anything. Yeah. So <laughs> I know I've sort of been like personally anti subtitles. In the past, I'm not anti-subtitles for people if they like them, but when I was re-watching the scenes for the podcast, I put the subtitles on, and I I really think, because the dialects are so heavy for this movie, that it's something to consider. I, I it really Some of the language is really in-depth, and it's not necessarily obvious, so I think it is something to consider whether you want subtitles on or not. Yeah, I mean, and, and on that note, at least have a good sound system to try to work out what they're saying. Uh, it's something I need yeah. to improve on my own home. I, it's something I realize I need to improve my own home setup is that my speakers are a little bit subpar. And, uh, you, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of, like, poetic readings of dramatic lines in this completely ridiculous movie that you don't want to miss, I think. Yeah, I I agree. And then, so... The other thing that I wanted to do here, and this is going to be a little different from past episodes, is I'm going to do a little bit of what might be more spoilers than normal here for stuff that may give you a little bit better viewing. So if that's something that you are not interested in, if you don't want to know a little bit of background on some of those themes, turn the show off now. Don't wait for 
don't wait for the little interlude music because it, it might be something you don't want. So I'll give you just a little count of three, three, two, one, <laughs> zero. Okay, th so there's a couple m myths that you may or may not be familiar with that if you are familiar with, it may enhance your enjoyment of this movie. It might just help you get it a little bit the first time. So the first one is the Prometheus myth. And the second, what's the second one, Matt? Proteus. Proteus, yes. So we won't go in depth on those, but if that's something you do want to know about, then go Google those and, and get a little, a little knowledge on those going in. I, I wish I had had some knowledge going in, and I'm generally spoiler-phobe 10 out of 10. <laughs> Anything else to add, or shall we move to the back half? That's it for me. All right, so we will talk to you on the other side. going to talk about the movie now with spoilers. So the first thing we normally do is just give our reaction, how this movie hit us this time. And I will, I'll go first here. The, so I think, I think this is a movie that you could very easily bounce off of um, if you're not in the right frame of mind, or if you don't really know what you're getting in for. But I did feel like I had a pretty good sense of what I was getting in for, and it did do one of my movie kryptonite things, which is it had it opened with almost seven and a half minutes of no dialogue, and that is just like something. If a movie does that, I'm almost always going to just be in the movie. I love it so much when they just take that time to establish establish the world kind of similar to matt like the end of the movie i still did not like i had no idea what the movie really was about the and the myths that i had mentioned at the beginning i i didn't i'm not familiar enough with proteus or prometheus to have gotten any of that but then it's one of those movies where as I was Googling it or as I was reading about it afterwards, and especially as I was re-watching the scenes, I was like, oh, I love this. Like, I really liked it after my initial viewing, but the more I thought about it and the more I read about it, and it's one of those places where having a podcast, like, is a huge advantage because you have to figure out how to talk about the damn movie. <laughs> and doing that just, like, really made me like it a lot more. So... 
I'll I'll toss it over to you, Matt. What how did how did it hit you this time? Yeah, you know, I my my thoughts on this are still a bit askew. I haven't really settled on how I feel about the film. Uh, I really enjoyed watching it, so that's that's I I thought it was a really fun one to watch, um, especially for the podcast and thinking about it and it's just a really weird experience. The I feel like what I really loved about the film was the craft. Uh, that was put into the film. The like it's so well made. Uh, the cinematography is so good. The acting is just incredible. All of the production design is really on point. The costumes are great. The the buildings and <clears throat> locations, everything is wonderful. As far as the story, like I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I, I like I said. I don't, I'm not even a hundred percent sure what happened. And I think that's how you're supposed to feel coming out of the film. And so mm-hmm. I, I have to really think about this, and I think I'm going to have to sit with this for probably like a year or so before I decide how I actually feel about the story. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, maybe you'll have you'll be somewhere different at the end of the podcast. For sure. Uh, what about you, Garrett? I think this was your third time watching it. Did you did you hate it this time? Oh, yeah. Suddenly I turned on it. No, no, no. <laughs> Uh, I loved it, and uh, maybe one of the things that can help you enjoy a film like this is watching it a second time or a third time, because you notice a lot the you know when you can when you don't have to focus on worrying about what was about to happen next because yeah. you know this film's like a it's like a psychological thriller right it's like a it, it's it's a horror movie it makes you feel unsettled and I remember especially at the climax of the film being really worried about what was going to happen, what I was about to watch. And when you know stuff like that, I feel like you can focus a little bit better on the details, right? Or or the foreshadowing and things like that uh, that appear through the film. So anyway, I, I'm just recommending, you know, that you watch it, you know, every six months or so for the rest of your lives. That's all. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I definitely had that experience when I was re-watching the specific scenes that we have pulled where... There was so much imagery stuff that I was like, there's one particular scene or one particular shot where he's, I think a lot of the imagery is like very obvious, like the keys going into the keyholes and the lighthouses being phallic objects and all of Mm -hmm. that. But there, there was one where he's uh, wheeling the wheelbarrow and the wheelbarrow is filled with water and there's like, a bottle in a glass bottle in the wheelbarrow and it's so obviously on the rewatch seemed to me like the bottle was supposed to be like penetrating the vaginal idea of this wheelbarrow because it's happening interspersed with um the masturbation scene which we'll talk a little bit about and when i watched it i was just like oh how did i miss this the first time like it's just <laughs> it, it seemed so obvious, but as you said, like I was wrapped up in like what's going to happen and am I understanding, like (laughs) trying to understand what's going on. And the other thing I wanted to talk about in for initial reaction was I, I don't know if you remember from your first time, Garrett, and I'm curious for you, Matt, like, did you have any expectations or thoughts about what the the movie spends the whole time fixating on the light of the lighthouse and what's going to be at the top and so did 
did you have any expectations or feelings about what that was going to be? Uh, I'll ask Matt first. So Garrett can try and remember so <laughs> three years ago. For for me, I I don't know. I didn't really care what was in the lighthouse. Yeah, I was just like, ah, it's some, you know, it's it's the light, it's the lighthouse. I I didn't think that. I honestly assumed that we weren't really ever going to find out for sure uh, what was in the lighthouse, and so I didn't preoccupy yeah. myself with that very much at all. Instead, it was just watching Robert Pattinson get so like absorbed in what what in what was going to be there and i just knew he was gonna it was gonna be i don't know the disappointment is the right word but that it was going to be essentially his downfall was whatever was in there and so what actually was inside there i didn't really care much about well you know Obviously, I remember three years ago, sparklingly, perfectly. <laughs> and so right away, I knew that the light of the lighthouse would be a MacGuffin. And <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm not really sure. I can't, I can't like remember my first viewing. I imagine though, like, you know, it feels like it was, uh, you know, going to be a metaphorical, you know, for almost like losing your mind is what that's, that's sort of the, the, the mantra of the, of the film, right? Is, is like this, like being sequestered away from all humanity and until you uh sort of lose your mind and so i felt like the obsession with the light was never going to be like oh it's this specific thing but more like a metaphor for having lost you know have uh, worshiping something as as bizarre as as the light of a lighthouse yeah yeah i was in a pretty similar spot and this is where my brain just is like it's hard to enjoy fully enjoy stuff on your first time through because I was definitely in a very same, the very same spot where I was like, there's just no, the way they've set this up, there's just kind of no way they're going to have like a reveal here. That is a satisfying reveal that like, if they try and do a reveal that is going to not feel cheap. Um, So I kind of went back and forth between I think what I most expected was that we just were actually never going to get to the top of the lighthouse and that it was like they were just never going to show it. And it was going to be one of those things that like some people think is brilliant and some people are like really (laughs) angry. It's like, well, why didn't we get to see it? But there was one thing that I kept thinking about. and I should have gone back and rewatched it, but I'm curious what both of you took from it is there was that one scene or that one shot where Robert Pattinson's character was under the grating. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea is that Willem Dafoe is masturbating up there, right? Because there's like Mm -hmm. this oozy, goopy, I think we're supposed to assume semen that drops down. But then I think at the end of that scene, it also seems like there's like an Eldritchian or serpenty thing that like flickers over the top, right? Well, the, the yeah the uh, the tentacles of some kind of sea horror appear, which I think is yeah. is you know they they kind of cleverly <laughs> suggested semen, and then they show you this goopy like covered uh, tentacle, which you know is also phallic. Yeah, I think that, th- and and then he suddenly awakes a- a- up the next day. I think after that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that one moment did a lot of work for continuing to like leave me on this hook of 
that like 30 or 40 percent that there was actually going to be something up there and that they were going to show it and so that was sort of like this weird teetering place that my brain was in at the end of the movie but i didn't have like a feeling of disappointment or of let down once we actually got there it was more just like the whole lead up to it i was like trying to figure out what where we were gonna gonna get to well the one of the things that I loved about the reveal when they do get up there, they, I mean, they don't show what's in the light, but they do mm-hmm. show the light, like the lighthouse's light. And the cinematography, that shot of the of the lighthouse, like the glass of that light is such a pristine, beautiful shot. Uh, my favorite shot in the film. And it is just gorgeous to look at. And so that's the other thing for me. Is like, I'm like, that was a great shot. Like that was worth it. Um, who cares what was, Mm -hmm. who cares what was inside? Well, and it's such a stark, like that darkness that you talked about for the entire movie. It's such a stark contrast to that. It's like, oh, we can finally (laughs) see, see the movie. (laughs) I think the other thing with that scene where he goes up and you see like the tentacle creature, uh, I was already in my mind thinking of like Proteus and yeah, he's a shapeshifter and shapeshifts specifically into like this sea monster with like tentacles and things like that so as soon as i saw that i was like oh we're we're doing like the proteus greek myth kind of stuff i didn't pick up on the prometheus stuff until until the very end but once i figured out that they were doing some proteus stuff then i was trying to figure out for the rest of the film like is he some ancient sea god or is he is robert pattinson imagining this and all of those kinds of stuff and I think it's supposed to be both at the same time, uh, which is part of why, you know, I, I think it's hard to understand exactly what the, like, canonicity story of the of the movie is, because I don't think it necessarily exists. It's got two parallel things going at once. Yeah. the I, I wanted to ask both of you, so Matt, you you sort of were trying to figure figure out what was true, and I... Actually, we'll talk about it later because it does tie into one of those one of the scenes. So let, let's talk about the first scene that we have here, which is the scene. So this is what kind of feels like the approach to the inmost cave, but then there's not really like a normal hero's journey here. So it doesn't function the same way as the story in the story. But this is the scene right before they miss the boat, and so it's the scene where they stay up stay up drinking and really kind of have their first fight or their first altercation and their first time where they also actually talk to each other and get to know each other. And I think it also might be the first time that Robert Pattinson's character drinks, right? Yeah. He refuses to drink throughout the whole film. And then finally he says, uh, Willem Dafoe's Thomas, tells him to to drink to the last night and then they get incredibly drunk together (laughs) yeah and so one of the things that i i liked about this scene was it really leaves it ambiguous about what why why they don't get picked up by the boat because it definitely implies that the boat just doesn't come but then i think there's a line where they're like, well, maybe we slept through it. Maybe we were just really too, too hammered to, to hear hear the boat come. 
and I I also liked how they did with this scene the it's a lot of really tight vignettes where they're talking and they're having intimate moments but then all of a sudden it'll sharp cut to them having a completely different emotion they're either laughing or singing mm-hmm. or yep. crying on the table and it gives this it's just one night but they really he really has to give the well, impression of yeah go ahead well you say he's just one night but then in the very next scene the rations are gone and Willem Dafoe oh, does yeah. suggest that it's been weeks since the they then the the boat was supposed to come and well because because robert pattinson's like well maybe i can take the dinghy out to the boat and he's oh. like you've, you've been repeating this for weeks but that could also easily and probably likely i think it's the suggestion be another example of you know what we talked about at the very beginning get the fact that willem defoe is constantly gaslighting robert pattinson's character i guess should we use their <laughs> the character's name thomas is willem defoe and um uh, and Winslow, Thomas is Robert yeah, and Thomas is Robert Pattinson. <laughs> Pattinson, although Winslow, Winslow is what he's going by until the Ephraim Winslow. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, and... I mean, I think that like that haziness and uns, you know, like the fact that they're in all these different moods while they're drinking, and also that's the scene where they dig up right after that the uh, huge case of booze, mm-hmm. um, implying that they must have gone through their booze store already so and that's what he means by rations in fact winslow even laughs to himself when he says rations when they pull that up (laughs) (laughs) and this is also the scene where robert pat because before this he he had only been referring to robert pattinson as dog like he hadn't been calling him by his name and he's finally like hey you gotta please call me by my name and I felt like that was that was probably the first time in the movie for me where it became really clear like what type of sort of weird, as you said, gaslighting, but also this weird like Oedipal father figure relationship was was going on. If that makes sense. Oh, he even yells at him, You're not my father. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, when Are he finally sure stands up that? to him, yeah. <laughs> this is another part that was really weird to to see coming from the book, which is, or not the book, the story that's unfinished story, because the story is about like this mm-hmm. old lighthouse keeper that has a dog that's keeping him companion, and so the idea that like oh. it's a dog, but no, it's a guy that he's treating like a dog. Ah, uh. there's the twist. Is was I don't know. I thought that was a really clever little interpretation that they did in 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 the film. Uh, I, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. The yeah, well, I, I will. We we talked about the gaslighting, but the big first instance of it is 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 closer to the beginning when he's called in. He says you've been neglecting your duties, and then he points at like the raggedy floor inside the kitchen and says oh, you have to clean right. this. And then he says I've I've been over it time time and time and again. And he and he accuses him of lying. And that's when Robert Pattinson says he's like you know I've never lived in such shambles before like there i could clean it a million times and then willem dafoe lays down the the law suggests you know if i tell you to rip up the floorboards you will and that's like the beginning of i mean they they really established that willem dafoe is just completely abusing robert pattinson very early and that's like the big 
that, that, I mean, that one's just like pretty clear. I think that he's just being gaslit because it's a wood, like a nasty wood floor. <laughs> that was my interpretation of it as well. But I, I was pretty surprised when I was like reading articles about this that there were a lot of people saying that there was that there were some interpretations of this movie where Robert Pattinson is the crazy one and mm-hmm. then it's all in his head. But that was like, I never, I can on rewatch. I was able to see where people got that, but I never got that feeling from the movie. Oh, I think that like the, both of them are pretty, I mean, it's an unreliable narrator situation. Cause you could see this like the beginning of the movie through like a warped lens of Robert Pattinson imagining that he's being treated unfairly, even though he's maybe is all the things that he's being accused of. But that's right. sort of what what's enjoyable about the film, right? Is that you don't really have a good handle on what exactly is happening at any point. Because he, you know, right away he's he's starting to see like visions and stuff. Like the he he wants to see the the light, and he goes up that night, and that's when we see the bizarre tentacle. I think this was before the storm and before the uh, four weeks were up. So in four weeks, I don't know. didn't seem like that long either. So no, the passage of time was certainly a little tough to get a handle on. I think intentionally, I was going to say, I I think the film is not only gaslighting Robert Pattinson, um, Ephraim Winslow, but I think it's also gaslighting the viewer. Like, I think that's part of what it's trying to do is every time you start to think that you've got a handle on what's real, it will add something in to contradict the reality that you've just established um, Mm -hmm. and shatter the schema that you've built up in your mind about the story. And so you're constantly going through this process of revisioning this the story in your mind of what's happening and as you keep doing this over and over again you just completely lose your sense of time and place within the story mm-hmm. and you're in the same boat pun unintended i guess uh, as <laughs> as robert pattinson was or as willem defoe whoever was whoever was doing what it's hard to tell at this point yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um that that was all i had to say about this scene did you want to did either of you want to say anything else or should we move on to the curse Oh, we got to move on to the curse. Sorry. All right. Yeah, this was the one you wanted to talk about, Garrett. So what what's going on here? I mean, this is like probably the... For anybody who's seen the movie or who has seen the trailer for it even, because there's parts of the curse that are in the trailer. Um, mm. And that's... It's just the most memorable scene in the in the whole film when they're both drunk. It's after they've missed the boat. Some indeterminate amount of time has occurred. And... And... They just start screaming what at each what? other? What? Uh, what? 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 Until uh, finally they get a little bit mad. They laugh again. And um, <laughs> and Winslow suggests that he... <laughs> Winslow suggests that uh, Thomas's cooking is not up to snuff. And he gets cursed with this incredibly... Like, it feels like a stage performance or something. Like a monologue or whatever. I'm not super versed in in theater lore but it 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 was like definitely a big dramatic moment but what i really really enjoyed about that scene where basically thomas is cursing winslow to a horrible death and the complete eradication of him from existence (laughs) via Mm -hmm. all these nautical scary terms 
uh, in the most dramatic and uh, way possible is that it's funny. Okay, so what I really want to hammer home about what I enjoyed about this movie is that it's scary and it's like thought provoking and artistic and it looks really nice, but it's still really funny and fun and like kind of silly and enjoyable. And that's that's the line for me. There's a lot of films that you know we we we've talked a lot about like comparing I don't know superhero films to art films and stuff like that. And you know sometimes you can get sort of lost in this artsy stream of consciousness. And a film like this though, like there's farting and there's like ridiculous over the top dramatic curses like this. Like this is what really drives it home for me as one of like why it's one of my favorite movies and why it like landed how it stuck the landing from the trailer that I saw. It, you know, you just have a lot of fun watching a movie like this in addition to how uh, you know, cool it is. So my my favorite line of the movie is this part where he's like, "But you're fond of me lobster, ain't you?" And like, <laughs> desperate for him to like his lobster um, and yeah yeah he's like i'm not saying anything and then he curses him like yep. and it just keeps going the curse you're like okay that's the end nope that's they're not done he's still going <laughs> and it's the worst curse ever like in the history of, because he doesn't like his lobster <laughs> because the end he's like fine yeah. i like your cooking and it, i don't know it's, it's great it was so Oh, I love the, that delivery and the, the just pathos in Willem Dafoe. I, yeah. You gotta like my lobster. It's good. <laughs> I mean, and the whole yeah. thing starts not because he even slights his cooking. All he says is he wants a steak. In fact, he says, you know, he wants to do something with a steak. And it tr- tr- triggers this am- amazing facial response in Willem Dafoe, who's having a great time. And then suddenly he frowns, looks down, and says, but you're fond of me cooking, aren't you? <laughs> and it's just like, it, I, I don't know, just like this absurd and extremely hilarious and entertaining moment that, you know, that I love it. Yeah, and I think like, correct me if you disagree, Garrett, but if you, there are actually videos, you could go look at the curse out of context. It's clipped on YouTube. Yeah. But... I think if you just watch the curse out of context, it's just like, it's like, yeah, this is like to be or not to be, you know, it's just like a Shakespearean monologue and it happens and it's also very serious. And then it's all buttoned with Robert, like it's a 90 second monologue, you know, 90 seconds to two minutes, I think. And then it's buttoned with Robert Pattinson just being like, okay, fine. I like your cooking. (laughs) 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 And then the scene just ends, I believe right after that, it just, boop, boop moves on yeah and oh i wanted to say this in the reaction section but i forgot but tell tell me if you think that i'm like way off base here but i feel like they're both of his films both this and the witch there's like this very specific combination of every single thing in the movie feels extremely specific like there isn't a single line and there isn't a single shot that it feels like it was accidental or it was like, oh, we'll just have the camera. Like, we just have to capture this. It doesn't matter where the camera is. And so it's that dichotomy with also never really seeming to take himself very seriously. Yeah. That feels 
like very similar to the feeling that I get when I'm watching a Coen Brothers film. Yep. Even though, like, the world is so different than any of the Coen Brothers films that I've seen. I mean, yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think that, like, for for me in my own taste, like, I just think that humor and silliness and sort of lightheartedness almost really can, like, keep you engaged in a film like this. Like, there's, you know, I think of, I don't know... Uh, the surrealist films that I remember watching in college where it's just, you know, where it's just weird images and there's no real plot line occurring and it's just meant to invoke certain feelings. Like, they're interesting to me, but, like, with the Coen brothers is a good example where they, they add, like, into this, like, surrealist landscape just a fun and not terribly complex plot line to follow with, like, jokes and silly moments and and just like something that can get you amped up and i just i don't know i think it really sells it for me specifically i mean you think about like like the big lebowski is a coen brothers movie you know everybody knows that one and it's a comedy right but there's so much weird stuff in that movie a lot of weird uh, stuff yeah and and but it's a lot of fun you know and most it's accessible too i mean i feel like most a lot of people are familiar with that film and it's like a pretty surrealist, bizarre film that is just happens to be a comedy. And, this, you know, this is a little closer, I think, to, I guess, I, I don't know how to say it. I feel like artistic isn't isn't an appropriate word. But The Lighthouse is a little bit more serious in tone. But it still has these very amusing and funny uh, moments that keep you that keep you stuck to it in a way that that doesn't lose you in the in the miasma of, of weird <laughs> yeah the coen brothers film it reminded me of the most was barton fink which i watched just a few weeks ago mm-hmm. uh another one that's very surrealist but it's a little bit it it uses a little bit more humor than this one a little bit more poking fun at, at itself but it it right. takes itself more seriously than something like the big lebowski or raising arizona or something like that and it's also about like people trapped in trapped together in close quarters and one person is heavily gaslighting the other one. So some similarities in that. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. It's John Goodman that's doing the the gaslighting, though, in that one. So there you go. Uh, a lot different. Mm. Perfect. <laughs> Do either of you want to say anything else about this scene, or should we move on? Let's move on. All right, yeah. The next one is the one that... I don't know, maybe this says too much about me. You said the curse is the scene that stands out, but the next one is the scene that stands out, stood out to me, and that's this masturbation sequence with Robert Pattinson. And this this sequence is just so wild. I mean, he is, so it's interspersed with him pulling up the lobster that I think it's supposed to be the lobsters that, that they're catching and they're eating. But then he's also like the storm is going on and you can see he is imagining this mermaid who he's seen or who he's think he thinks that he's seen. And you get a few shots of like mermaid breast and you get a few shots of like him in whatever the tower. I don't really have a good sense of where it is in the lighthouse of him legit masturbating but then you also have a few shots of him having sex with the mermaid and if like it felt so wild because 
you have this, like, it shows you the shot of him having sex with the mermaid. And I don't know, maybe I'm just a weirdo, but it's like, I, I feel like anytime someone talks about sex with mermaids, which, uh, I don't know how common it's, that is it's in your life. It's more often than you might think, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like I've definitely overheard the conversation of like, well, how does that even work? Right. And before you even have a chance to think it, the movie shows you exactly oh, it shows how you, yeah. it works. Yeah. <laughs> in case you were wondering how the anatomy works, it's all right there. <laughs> it's right there in the film. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, oh, yeah. Here's how it goes. But well, then, you know, he has that chiseled figurine that's mm-hmm. a mermaid that he keeps yeah. throughout the he brings it with him to the island and uh, or no 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 he finds it that's right he finds, he finds it, it the, there yeah at the very beginning in inside of his bedding from the previous assistant who he also digs up that guy's head in one of the lobster chat yeah i traps. think it's in this scene i think it's the culmination yeah. of this scene yeah like a like a half eaten um severed head which he accuses uh, willem defoe of, of of murdering that guy and this and was yeah, a that's, place that's... where where my aphantasia did not work for me because I definitely thought that head was Robert Pattinson. Oh. It, yeah, it <laughs> In was a not Darth Vader scene. <laughs> yeah, that, that's 100% what I thought it was on my initial viewing. That makes sense, yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is a little bit different. Yeah, I think that... Yeah, a little different. Uh, I think he has a line later where he's like, you killed... Where he's like, you killed the... Um, the previous person i found them in the lobster trap and then i was able to put it together but yeah yep yeah another wild thing about this masturbation scene is uh it's a, it was robert pattinson's first scene on the movie um oh really so, <laughs> <laughs> the first Welcome scene they filmed work, bud. So, yeah uh, let's see that bud. <laughs> so he shows up for work and they're like okay so we're gonna do the masturbation scene he'd read the script and everything he knew was coming up but they brought out like these these detailed instructions like diagrams on how people masturbated at that mm. time period so like okay so this is how what, yeah, so... <laughs> what? <laughs> so he had like uh, i'm gonna need hr <laughs> here yeah. so he... <laughs> he had you know like a storyboard of this is how it's gonna work and this is how we need to like period accurate uh masturbation well, like every other shot in the entire film, it looked like a photograph, like very meticulously crafted. Oh, uh, and you get a very nice butt shot, too. You do, yes. You do. If you're interested in Robert Pattinson's butt, which, you know, I think many are, good film. Maybe we should have said that in the first half of the show. Maybe more yeah, people I know. Would have stuck around this so. long. <laughs> He looks great in this film. If you're if you're into like you know uh, scruffy guys like this that have uh, not bathed in a few weeks, but <laughs> he's <laughs> for not having bathed or shaved for quite a long time. He looks really good. Yeah, I mean this is this is one of the things that you had said about the movie, Garrett. Right, that every shot looks like a photograph, and mm-hmm. it is one of those things that I really appreciate about movies is when it just takes the time to linger on the image that they really want you to see. And they do that at the end of this scene. You get that really nice silhouetted shot where I think like most of him is shadowy and dark except for his butt, which right. is light. And um, yeah, it's it's a great shot, you know? And, you know, I mean, we've been talking about it for a while, but like there's this weird repressed sexual energy throughout the whole 
film that's really uncomfortable and I think that you know reflects the loneliness that they're both experiencing in, stranded in the middle of this storm in the in the lighthouse but also I don't know other other weird awkward uh feelings yeah no it's definitely I I was curious how far they were gonna go I mean it's clear that there's homoeroticism yeah all over this movie and then there's the one scene which i think is right after this where they almost kiss and then fight <laughs> and then fight yeah and, and they dance together at one point and they and yeah. they dance together yeah and it really is this poor i mean we didn't talk about it in 2019 but in, in our section about the time period but this is in this eight-year period or whatever where we're six-year period where we're post-Gamergate, where we're really, like, starting to finally, as a society, take stock of, like, the toxic masculinity that we've been dealing with societally. And that section is where it sort of comes into the most stark contrast of this movie, where there's just, like, so much self-loathing because of these feelings and also that combined with the Oedipal stuff that I had mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Where it's just like, they, because of that, I think you could have a reading of that where because they don't, they aren't at a place where they can work through that stuff healthily is the reason they both go crazy. Like if they were able to just have an adult conversation about any of this stuff, then maybe they wouldn't have both died. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think that's a fair reading of it. Like, absolutely. 100%. Also, if they, you know, they could have just, what's the way to say this? They could have just banged it out, and I think they would have been happy. You know, they would have been really happy afterwards. Um, so they, yeah, they probably would have been like, "We don't care that the ship isn't here. Yeah, you know? we're just." An adult conversation would have also you... been nice, but they could have had more than just an adult conversation. Is all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, let's leave the masturbation scene on on that note, and we'll talk about the last scene, which is the one that you had pulled, Maddie. So why don't you walk us through? Yeah. This so one? there's a scene. It's getting close to the end where Robert Pattinson he's just like had enough, and he decides he's going to try to escape. So he goes out to the boat, and they're going. He's pulling the boat off of the dock, and Willem Dafoe comes behind with his axe. And chops it to bits, and then uh, starts chasing after Robert Pattinson, who runs away, being chased all the way back in the house. Willem Dafoe comes up behind him, and they have they fight over this, and I can't remember exactly what they say in this moment. But Willem Dafoe turns to him and he's like, "Well, you know, when you went crazy just a little while ago, and you chopped up the boat, and then you chased me with the axe." And this reaction that Robert Pattinson has where he's like, no, but then he thinks and he's not sure. And he he gives over his knife to him and all of those things. It was really fascinating seeing the way it was all put together. And for me, that was really where the film came together, like the thesis of the film came together Mm -hmm. Um, and the total unreality of their experiences and the way they were gaslighting each other. 
really came crystal clear at that moment. And then everything precipitously falls off after that point. We didn't talk yet about how Winslow is there. Robert Pattinson is there because he, you know, inadvertently murdered a guy. Right. right. He, yeah. And he, he tells, he tells uh, Thomas Willem Dafoe this uh, later in the movie, but that whole, like allowing yourself to be, you know, punished and uh, gaslit into believing that you've been doing all these things. In addition to maybe that's just, we're just getting an unreliable narrator account of things. It's like, it felt to me like he feels like he needs to be punished throughout most of the mm. movie uh, yeah. for, for having let that guy die and taking him, taking his identity. So that, that scene where he hands the knife back felt like he was like giving it into an authority because he just couldn't trust his own, his own instincts or self, anymore i mean he sees the floating corpse of the guy that he let die in the very first scene uh he wades out into the water in the first like 10 minutes of the movie and he sees the blonde the actual winslow um that he stole his identity he sees him so it's clearly haunting him from the very moment he arrives on the island uh, that that I did not get that. That's probably something you. It's hard to get if you don't. I did. I certainly didn't get it on the first viewing, but on the yeah, you know, you know. second, because you know, once you know that there's this other character, because the that person shows up a couple more times, like in, like uh, at one point, Willem Dafoe transforms into him, and uh, he sees the back of his head a lot, which is you know the view that he saw right before the the guy falls into the logs and dies. So I think that's like that's like a big part of his character, right? And and why he's sort of accepting the abuse that Willem Dafoe is giving him. That makes a lot of sense to me, yeah. Yeah. And I love his his performance in this moment where you see all of that and you he does such a good job of showing his I don't even want to say inner tor- turmoil cuz like I guess his resignation the the fact that he just feels completely beat and i think in contrast to the the previous gaslighting incidents where it's a little ambiguous like the audience hasn't really seen quite the evidence that of what gaslighting is going on this is the one where we really do the double take and it's like wait a minute no we just we just saw you <laughs> right we just saw you do that like we we know what happened but again willem willem defoe does such a good switch here where i i don't know if either of you have ever been in scenarios or worked with bosses who who have treated you this way but yes that switch yes. can so yes i have been in that experience anyway continue on yeah that switch is just so scary and it was one of those moments where it was just like it it happens so realistically that it does it makes you feel like you're the crazy one and i had to rewind it to be like wait no i, I swear it was robert pattinson <laughs> running away from willing to vote so you're saying it worked on you uh, then which it, is it threw me off i was yeah. like no no you're yeah. lying i'm rewinding yeah. so i can show you look that's you <laughs> you're the one who had the had the aphantasia here (laughs) it's it's so it's so unsettling it's it's just it and it just directly contradicts the evidence of your eyes that you just had and it's 
it yeah it it got me this, this scene got me yeah and one of the things like if you become obsessed with people who have that particular affliction is one of the things that happens is the their behavior and the how extreme their behavior is and how brazen they get will ramp up exponentially when they feel like they've been caught or when they start getting scared that they've been caught. And so I think that's intentional that this comes right after the scene where they almost kiss. I think that Mm -hmm. heightened emotion is what, what causes this sort of such a brazen break in reality. That and the kerosene they were drinking. Well, yeah, the, the the honey kerosene certainly doesn't help. I'd imagine I've I we we don't endorse drinking honey and kerosene on this podcast, but I yeah I'd imagine it would would it probably yeah it probably does has uh, some side effects. You know this this film does really have a very strong like don't drink message in it, kids. Uh, uh, as soon as as soon as Robert Pattinson takes that very first sip, it is all downhill from there. It oh, is a it slippery is. Yeah. slope. One of the things that we've done, Garrett, on the show is we've sort of like talked about: is this our drunkest movie ever? Is this our drunkest movie ever? Oh, I think you've and, got a winner now. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be hard to top this one. It's now. this one and Pete's Dragon. Um, it's uh, the two drunkest movies we've covered. So, uh, which. In a strange twist of fate, I was going to mention this later, but we do have this very strange stream at crossover where uh, starring role for The Lighthouse in both this and Pete's Dragon. Excellent. Yeah, it's true. And they did build a lighthouse for this movie, just like they did for Pete's Dragon as well. (laughs) Um, Cool. Do, Do either of you want to say anything else about any about this scene or should we move into cleanup here i have i have one more thing about this scene so this scene they it's a funny story from production they ran out of money and so they couldn't afford to like build the dock all the way out so they like calculated and they're like we're only going to build the dock this many feet and we're only going to shoot for this amount of time and there's going to be like this storm going and we have to go in we have to get the shot we only have one boat. We can only do this. All of that kind of stuff. So they go out. They shoot the scene. And the actors do this phenomenal, amazing job. They get it all in one take. They bring it back. And then they go and look at the film. And one of the lights was pointed in the wrong direction. So you couldn't see anything that they had done. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. And so they had to reshoot their most expensive scene all over again because of one light that was pointed in the wrong You just couldn't see what happened. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's brutal. <laughs> Heartbreaking moment. It's a so the cinematographer, he's he's he said he looked at it and he's like, should I even say anything or should I just leave it? And he's like, but you can't see anything that happened and so they had a lot of it was one of those kinds of scenes. Oh, I I know that tension cuz I have not with making movies, but I've been in the recording studio where I've like laid down a piano track and I can hear this like wrong note or this thing where I just like hiccuped a little bit and everyone else seems so happy with the take. And I'm like, do I say anything? Yeah. Like eventually, like eventually someone's going to notice this wrong note and it 
sorry we have to do it all again yeah <laughs> <laughs> it, oh it sucks it's such a such a brutal we gotta feeling. build another boat because uh willem defoe chopped it to pieces yep. so thanks willem but yeah that's all i got to say about this one <laughs> All right. Well, let's move into into cleanup then. So, Garrett, this is just, you know, the purpose of the scenes is just to get the get us talking about the movie and have a little bit of structure. So it's not just like, oh, what do you want to say? What do you want to say? But cleanup is our section to mention anything that we haven't gotten to fit in in the in the previous section. So to, I only have one thing that I wasn't wasn't really able to fit in, and that's that. I so all over there's a ton of different discussions about the inspiration for this film but I was really surprised not to find two that I felt pretty starkly when I was watching the film which was uh The Shining I think that's pretty mm-hmm. obvious I mean both are seclusion psychological horror stories but then also The Birds and particularly that one sequence where the birds are all all swarming, which felt both felt pretty pretty obvious to me. My dog hated that scene. We learned that seagulls are a trigger for my dog, and he watched that whole film with us. <laughs> um, yeah, the I mean, the sound is unbelievable for this film, and yes, we so Tay, our dog, she never cares about what is on TV, but she was not happy for the first 20 minutes of this movie with the sound of the lighthouse the foghorn the the foghorn yeah yeah oh they did they did (laughs) such a good job and i will say like i do have a sound bar so my sound is fairly decent in the apartment thanks to a friend of the pod evan for getting that sound bar for me but it was an even better experience re-watching on my headphones i heard a lot of yeah really nice details that i didn't capture in in my apartment yeah the sound design is in this film really puts you into the <laughs> into this weird uh secluded island with the with the, the ominous foghorn blaring every every so often that and then uh one of the things i love is is how in the very beginning robert Pattinson actually like reacts to one and curse, yeah, yeah. curses it um because it's it's so I mean, it's like another item that's driving them to madness. I think. Well, the the first like couple of foghorns, I because I was on my headphones in my room, but I was like, did I? Is there like a noise going on outside? Because I heard the the foghorn, and I'm like, <laughs> what is that noise? And then when he finally reacts to it, I think it's on like the third one or something. You see him, and he. Re- I was like, oh, oh, that's. I'm dumb. That's the foghorn that's going on the show. Um, And it was just so, because it was designed so well, it was so unsettling for, and like felt like someone's blowing a horn for some kind of emergency. Uh, It worked really well. Yeah. But we can't, we can't mention the sound design without talking about the goddamn thoughts. (laughs) Peppered throughout the entire film. Willem Dafoe just like openly farts, I don't know, half a dozen times. Oh, it's great. And it's like part of the, <laughs> it's part of the, the tapestry of the madness in this film. It's just. <laughs> and I think the first one happens before there's any dialogue. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
or just yeah I, I can't remember it's just but it's very in the beginning right when they're they meet each other in the bedroom the shared bedroom and he just walks yeah. out and lets it rip and yep. later when Barbara Pattinson's headed out to the cistern to f- clean it out um mm-hmm. there's that there's that trombone <laughs> it sounds like in the music that's definitely I thought it was meant to mimic the sound of Willem Dafoe's monster farts but Oh no! It it definitely is. Well, now now you're. I don't I don't know if you're setting me up, but I was the one who thought it was a trombone, and you had said in the chat that it was an oboe. Oh, and then that's... I went back and listened, and I'm pretty sure it is an oboe. All right, and I think you were you were right. So, you so what you're saying is that you gaslit me into thinking it was a trombone, and then I yeah. in, the, in the recording I I remembered it as the your version of events. Yeah, I thought I imagined <laughs> it at first, but I do have in my notes, I say I have 1430 fart into trombone, question mark, question mark. And I thought maybe I had made it up. And then when I went back and watched it, no, they are definitely trying to do it. And I'm guessing they think it's a joke. I'm guessing it was like, yeah, they heard the fart sound and they were like, well, oh, it actually is. No, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty. I mean, I get the impression like Robert Pattinson's over Willem Dafoe already, and that's just like it was a way to indicate that he was still thinking about how weird and obnoxious that was. <laughs> yeah, what were you gonna I, say? I man? was gonna say, I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure that's a bassoon right there. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm joking. It's, it's, I'm just it no, I'm be, lying. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> I was trying to gaslight both of you right afterwards, going along with the theme. <laughs> Some kind of fart-based instrument. Now um, no one will know. We're so music. confused. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't have anything else for cleanup. So do you, do y'all have anything anything else you want to mention? I could probably talk about this movie forever. So I've just got two more things, though. I'll narrow it down. When he first cleans that, when Robert Pattinson first cleans the cistern, um, he it's there's a bunch of muck swirling around if you look at it it looks like a storm from uh satellite imagery coming towards towards it oh, that's cool which is something mm. something that i noticed just a nice little bit of uh visual foreshadowing imagery and then the other thing i want to talk about was robert pattinson's accent which he actually got a lot of flack for i think from various people because it kind of changes throughout the film it definitely does yeah but my understanding is that that was you know he practiced a lot of bizarre you know like the accent dead accents from the time period and i think what's happening is that he's melding back and forth between his true accent and the accent that of the stolen identity uh, mm-hmm. of the man that he's killed i think that's what's happening and when he gets drunk, it gets even more pronounced. But I just thought that was a, a nice touch to to the movie. But it was also something that I, I did see people complain about. It was a you know, and and I, I didn't know where you guys were. I, at I agree with, with your take with on it. I, I, in fact, I think the scene where his accent falls off the most is where he's spilling the beans about yes about murdering mm-hmm. Ephraim Winslow and there's this great delivery that he has where he's like but I did not and the yes the accent that he has on that is so distinct from what he'd done before but I think it read to me as if that was deliberate to show uh show the difference between these two personas that he's building uh yeah I think that makes sense that is better than my reading on it was that or what I had thought was that it was just the film's way of of gaslighting us but i think your reading is a little more specific and makes more more sense cool 
<laughs> so I did not. And, yeah, go the ahead, one man. bit of cleanup that I that I wanted to get to still is they got such good performances out of the birds in this movie. Um, yeah. That scene where that bird is like blocking his way into the yeah. house, that bird acted the hell out of that scene. Yeah. It's <laughs> way to go, bird. It was really good. So. And then when they're eating the birds the, were very oh, ominous when too. they're eating him later on, that's also, you know, great performance there, birds. So Oh, and we should also mention really quickly that they there are two famous images here that they that they recreate in the film. And yes. one of them is the very last shot of the film, which is the Orpheus getting eaten by Prometheus. Eaten by crows. Or sorry, yeah. What did I yes, say? Orpheus? Orpheus. Different, completely no, different have, Greek mythology story. I have Hades Town on the brain. Yes, uh, Prometheus getting eaten by the crows, and then what was the Proteus one? Yeah, Molly? there's a there's a Proteus picture that's if you go and look up Proteus like on Wikipedia, you'll see that picture right next to it. And I'll put there's it in the, the moment the where notes. Willem Dafoe like they're fighting and he's choking him, and then he transforms for a moment. Or if Robert Pattinson's just mm-hmm. imagining it, and it evokes that image of Proteus pretty clearly. Yeah. Do Do you want to say anything else, Garrett? This is your your last chance on on this movie. Don't Don't open that can of worms. I, I I'm, I'll never stop. But no, I'll I let mean... you spill the beans, man. <laughs> No, I think I think you got me. I think I'm think I'm spent for the moment, but All right. I'm sure I'll think of something and call you up late at night and tell you my crackpot theories about the lighthouse. <laughs> yeah, well, well, this was fun, so we'll we'll have you on again, so you can you can save it up and then inter- interject them into into other movies and just drive everyone crazy. <laughs> All right, so that will do it for this first bonus episode as always matt and i would love to get your feedback we'd love to hear if you liked the bonus episode and we're trying out having having guests you know we we assume people get get sick of hearing from just me and matt so it's always good to get another (laughs) another perspective on the show so if you do want to reach out to us you can find me on twitter at zvazda z-v-a-z-d-a and you can find matt at o-ray-m-w o-r-a-y-m-w and you can find garrett at uh the g-guards yeah and links for all those will be on the show notes and if you want to send us something that's longer than 140 characters or you don't want to do a huge tweet thread, you can send us an email <laughs> at podcaststreamit, just those three words, podcaststreamit, at gmail.com. And as always, a huge thank you to David Stewart, a.k.a. Estoriel, for his tireless help editing on the podcast. And, yeah, he's really editing out some ums and ahs and uh, any time where we have to pause and, and look stuff up so we don't sound too horribly, horribly dumb. So, huge thank you. And finally, Garrett, we, as sort of a reward for, or maybe it's a punishment for people who <laughs> stick around all the way to the end, we always do a, a fun little closing question. So I have sure. one. Uh, neither you or Matt know this question, but, you know, Willem Dafoe, if you, in this movie, his character, if you assume he's a good faith actor, this is a really difficult position. You know, you're hiring someone to come live with you on a secluded island for for four weeks. 
and you're going to get to know each other really well. So what I wanted to ask you guys is if you were in Willem Dafoe's position and you were hiring for this position, you yeah, double position, if you were had to hire for this job, what is the question, the interview question that you would ask to try and make sure you got the best possible candidate? That's a difficult question. I've got one. Yeah, go ahead. What did you do during COVID lockdown? <laughs> oh, that's, that's a good. Really good question. Oh, jeez. <laughs> tell me about your COVID experience. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's that's a great one. Um, what about you? I'd Maddie? probably like. I don't know take out some of these pictures of these classical Greek mythology stuff and just show them and be like, what's your reaction to this? And so... <laughs> You'd Rorschach yeah, test, test them. <laughs> That's good. I would ask them when the last time they lost their temper was and how they calmed down from that scenario. That's, that's definitely a more professional answer, but... it's good. That's good, yeah. Yours, yours is more fun. I think Garrett's is the best. <laughs> yeah, Garrett's, is, that's a great answer. <laughs> All right. How, how so weird that, is it that this movie came out right before oh, COVID? So weird. It's so strange, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I don't want, don't want to think And this about movie's that like, one. listen, <laughs> if you got stuck in one place for a whole month, you'd go crazy. And then... <laughs> two years later! <laughs> woo! And then two years later... Hopefully, hopefully that doesn't happen with uh, the Northmen, because I can't imagine that's a super happy one either. Awesome. And on on that note, we will <laughs> talk to you all next time. Oh, and Garrett, thanks for coming on. I hey. guess I we haven't said that, but thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. I had a lot of fun talking about I don't know one of my favorite movies. It was a delight. Yeah, well, always, always love to hear what people love about the movies they love. All right, so that'll do it for us, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.